Hello everyone out there in the uh, interwebs, cyber church online people. Great to uh, be with you today. I'm excited today because I have the privilege of teaching about one of my favorite texts from the Bible. I've referred to this passage many times in other sermons or I've cross-referenced over to this and stuff, but this is the first time I've really got a chance to preach directly on this passage from Isaiah. So I'm excited about that. This is the fourth week of our series, which we've called Isaiah, God's Story of Hope. And a lot of what we have seen so far in Isaiah has been the prophet pointing out uh, the sinfulness of God's people and the sinfulness of his own nation and predicting terrible judgments that are coming as a result. Right from the start, in chapter 1, verse 4, Isaiah declares the word of the Lord. He says, Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Even their attempts to follow the biblical instructions to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem are sinful, says the prophet. God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. But even in the midst of all this sin and judgment and condemnation, this is God's story of hope. So right there in the middle of all that in chapter 1, we have this incredible offer from God in chapter 1, verse 18. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In the midst of all this sin and judgment, God offers forgiveness and cleansing. And so we see right away in chapter 1, Isaiah's prophecy is, is, is God's story of hope. The story is not, don't worry, everybody. It's not as bad as it seems. Everything's okay. Things are fine. On the contrary, God's story of hope is that things are actually much worse than you thought they were. But there is still hope because God is merciful and as we just uh, saw in the memory verse, which comes from a couple chapters uh, later in Isaiah, uh, God himself has become our salvation. Now in the section we looked at last week, Isaiah described the people of God as a vineyard that God had planted and cared for and cultivated. But then when harvest time came, the vineyard produced bad fruit. And after the story of the vineyard, God pro, uh, pronounced six woes. He said, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field, which was a condemnation of greed. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after their drinks, a condemnation of those who chase pleasure. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, 
a condemnation to those who scoff at God. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. A condemnation of those who put themselves as judges of right and wrong above God. And woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. A condemnation of those who are too prideful to listen to the word of God. And woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. A condemnation of those who are unjust. That's a lot of woe. Uh, and at the end of chapter 5, there is not a note of hope and mercy. In fact, the chapter ends with God promising to call in conquering armies to destroy his sinful people. Now, some of you are probably thinking, man, these Old Testament prophets are harsh. The God of the Old Testament is such a terrible God of judgment. It's a good thing we have the New Testament to balance out all of this judgment. I wonder why Mike and James chose to preach on this, this kind of depressing condemnation stuff. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you part of the reason why right now. Uh, one reason is that the message of Isaiah really is God's story of hope. But here's the thing. If everything's fine, who cares about hope? Uh, when, when God offers you forgiveness and hope, does that seem like a big deal to you? Or is that just what you expect God to do? Do you think along the lines of, of course God is going to give us forgiveness and mercy and grace and hope. What else would he do? And the underlying belief that makes us think that way is, my sins really aren't that bad. I'm actually a pretty decent person. I'm a nice guy. In fact, most people are really pretty good. At, yeah, there's some bad apples out there, but most people are good and decent. And uh, although I might not be as good as some, I'm pretty sure I'm in the top half. And so really, I deserve to be forgiven by God. People, search your hearts. Is that attitude down there hiding in your heart? Not on the surface. Most of us wouldn't really say that, right? But, but deep down, is it there? Do you hear Isaiah speaking God's woes and, thick, and think to yourself, he's laying it on a bit thick, isn't he? People aren't really as bad as he's making out. I know I'm not that bad, and I don't think that most people are. It would be unfair of God to judge us as harshly as what Isaiah is describing here. Or there is the slightly better version that goes something more like this. Yes, of course, we've all sinned. We're all guilty. But it would be unfair of God to judge us for that without first offering us a chance to repent and be forgiven. We actually deserve a second chance from God. And a third chance and however many chances it takes. Because that's, you know, that's what we deserve. Now, if that thought is somewhere down in your heart, hold on to your seat because here comes chapter 6. Here it is, chapter 6, verse 1. 
Isaiah tells a personal story here. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah doesn't say exactly how he saw this vision of God, whether it was some kind of dream or what, but somehow he saw the Lord. Now, of course, we know that, that God is actually a spirit being. He's not a physical being. He doesn't have a physical body, so you can't really see him. So what is it that Isaiah saw? Well, Isaiah saw a self-revelation of God. God showed something of himself to Isaiah. He got a look at a representation of the greatness of God. And that look at God had an enormous impact on Isaiah. It changed everything for him. Now you notice that uh, he doesn't actually describe what God looked like. But he does say that he was high, exalted, and seated on a throne. Now why is God seated on a throne? Well, obviously, it's because he is the king, the ruler. King of what? Everything. Everything. King of the whole earth? Well, certainly that, but a whole lot more than that. He's the king of all creation, the entire universe. That includes everything that exists. It is all his dominion, including me and including you. Now, you might think that since God has such a huge realm to rule over, the whole solar system, galaxy, all the galaxies, all the, he can't really, uh, you know, there must be layers of middle management somewhere between us and God, right? And, and, and while some Catholics seem to think that the saints and the priests serve that role, they're mistaken. We can't think of God like we would think of a human leader. A human can only have so many direct reports, and then there's got to be uh, layers of uh, 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 down, down. He needs to delegate leadership to those people who lead others, who lead the actual people. It would be impossible for a human leader to be directly involved in the lives of even, say, 100,000 people. But God has no such limitations. He is the direct ruler of all six billion people that are alive today. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we can approach God's throne with confidence. We have direct access to the king. And God is directly interested in your life. Not just in human life in general or in the affairs of nations. God is interested in ruling your life. The dominion of his throne includes you. Isaiah describes God's attendants who are around the throne next. It says, uh, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they, called to, or they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So these attendants uh, apparently are angels. Now, in most places in the Bible where angels are described, they're simply uh, said that they look like men. But of course, in the same way that God is a spirit and has no actual physical form to look at, angels are the same way. Uh, what do angels look like? They don't look like anything. They're spirits. But sometimes God uh, chooses uh, them to be visible to us. And usually, he simply makes them look like people. But this time, he gave them this very different appearance. These, uh, I've seen a few artist renditions of what these seraphim uh, might have looked like. But really, the description here that Isaiah gives us is pretty sparse. I think the best we can say is that they appear as some kind of unique flying creatures whose precise look is, is unknown. But they are very much not human. They are magnificent, flying, spiritual creatures. And they cover their feet and their faces in response to the glory of God who sits on the throne. And they worship him by calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why three holies? We just sang songs that had the three holies in them too. Why, why do we repeat that three times? Well, in Hebrew, which is the language that Isaiah wrote this in, and presumably the language that God was revealing himself in to Isaiah, um, repetition is used uh, for emphasis. So they don't have a word like our English word, very. So instead of saying uh, that something was very blue, they would say, this thing is blue, blue. Or, um, you know, if, if a Hebrew speaker was trying to describe my wife, he would say she was beautiful, beautiful. Because repetition is how they emphasize things, right? But just one repetition was not enough to say how holy God is. So they say, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. That means he's really very holy. But what is holiness anyway? What are we talking about here? Well, there's two sides to holiness. First, something that is holy is completely separated from evil. Completely separated from all evil. There is no little part of God that is, does, or desires anything impure. He has never done anything wrong. He has never been evil in any way. He has never wanted anything that was wrong or evil. God is absolutely, completely free from all sin and unrighteousness. Now, occasionally, people see terrible things happen, and we want to blame God for them. This is God's fault. He has done me wrong. But the seraphim know better. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. God has never done anyone wrong. He has never treated anyone unfairly. He has never condemned the innocent. 
or acquitted the guilty. God is totally separate from all sin and evil. But you know who else has never sinned? The seraphim that are worshiping God in this, in this scene here. Because, you know, all the angels were created sinless, just like people were originally created sinless. But unlike humanity, only some of the angels became sinful. Those who followed the, the greatest, uh, most powerful angel, Satan, in his rebellion became sinful and, uh, and were, uh, were given no opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. But the rest of the angels, in fact, the majority of the angels, remained pure and holy and never gave in to temptation. And yet, these seraphim are overwhelmed by the holiness of God so that they cover their faces and call out to each other about it and worship him. And I think part of the reason why they are so overwhelmed by the holiness of God has to do with the other side of holiness. Because not only is God holy in the sense that he is completely separate from sin, he also always does what is good, righteous, and beneficial. See, if God were simply free from sin, he would essentially be neutral. He would just be... That's just nothing, right? No sin, but nothing good either. But holiness is more than that. Our holy God is perfectly good. The seraphim may not have done anything wrong, but uh, they have not been positively holy, doing every good and perfect thing that they could do in the same way that God has. So is our God, who is holy, 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 worthy to rule as king? Absolutely. Would it be a good idea to submit to his rule in your own life? No question. So when Isaiah sees this vision of God and grasps a bit more of his holiness and his glory, how does he respond? Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That same word that Isaiah has applied to the nation in chapter 5 with all those six woes, he now applies to himself. In chapter 5, it was woe to the greedy and the arrogant. But when he sees this vision of God, Isaiah realizes that he is ruined. To see God is to see ourselves in comparison. God is holy and we are not. Isaiah confesses that he is a man of unclean lips. The things that he says are not always good and pure and right. And he is a part of a people who share his sin. And now that he has seen God, he knows. 
if God is holy, if he is completely separate from all sin and always does what is just and right, then how will this God respond to this unholy man and his unholy people? Judgment and ruin. That is what Isaiah deserved because he was unclean. He had no doubt about that. That is what I deserve because I am sinful and unholy. And that is what you deserve. Justice demands that we be punished for our sin and removed from the presence of a holy God. Isaiah sees this reality and he mourns. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness because he knows that he has no right to ask. At that moment, he gives up hope. I am ruined. But our God is a God of hope. And in chapter 6, we see God's response. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which we had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What a relief. Here is hope. Here is God's mercy and grace. Here is God's love. Isaiah's guilt has been removed and his sin has been atoned for. But how was this accomplished? How can a holy God overlook sin? Well, the seraph takes a live coal from the altar and applies it to Isaiah's sinful lips. Now, this is the first mention of the altar here. What altar are we talking about? Well, earlier it mentioned that God's, uh, the train of his robe was filling the temple. So in this scene, Isaiah is seeing the temple and the altar is the altar that was at the temple, which is the altar of sacrifice which the sacrificial lambs were given as burnt offerings to atone for sins, they were sacrificed to God. And these sacrifices that were given on this altar were a symbol of the ultimate sacrifice that God was to make to purify his people from their sins. You see, as God had said through Isaiah uh, back in chapter 1, he says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of the rams uh, of rams and fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You see, God is not impressed by the animal sacrifices that they were doing. Uh, those were only a symbol. Um, that's why he, he took the coal from the altar to purify Isaiah because those sacrifices that were made on that altar were a foreshadow of the one real sacrifice that was to come. When Jesus sacrificed himself as our substitute on the cross, a real effective sacrifice was made. And his payment made through his blood 
atoned for our sins, and made our forgiveness possible. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, which we'll get to eventually, um, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Through the sacrifice of the Messiah, through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, we can have peace with God and we can be healed. What was true for Isaiah can be true for all of the people of God. Isaiah was not less sinful and thereby worthy of God's forgiveness. He was a man of unclean lips and his people shared the same sin. In his vision, he saw his own salvation. But throughout the Bible, the offer of salvation is made to all, including all through the book of Isaiah. Because God has initiated a way through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can be free from guilt, just like Isaiah. But the story does not end there. Next, Isaiah heard the voice of God speaking. And here's what God said. It says, uh, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. God's mercy and grace for Isaiah does not end with his forgiveness. God also offers him the opportunity to serve his purpose. And Isaiah immediately volunteers. Why do you think Isaiah was so anxious and so eager to serve his God? Was he trying to make some kind of a payment for his sins? No. I think there was two reasons. First, just to look at who it is that he is being given the opportunity to serve. The Lord Almighty, the high and exalted King, the Holy One Himself, who wouldn't jump at the opportunity to serve the King? There's a, there's a story that illustrates this idea in a, in a small way, but it's a personal story. So, um, see, the summer before I went to seminary, this would have been about uh, 1997, I believe, um, I was working uh, ground crew for Lake Clark Air out at Merrill Field. And Lake Clark Air flies mainly out to Port Allsworth and a few villages around that area out there in Lake Clark. And Lake Clark is a fabulously beautiful place. Um, and there are some world-class fishing lodges uh, out in that area that draw people from all over the world. Um, and, uh, and one evening when I was working... Uh, we were waiting around. All the flights were done except for one last flight was going to be going out to Port Allsworth that night. And it had, uh, the person we were waiting for was Michael W. Smith, who was doing a concert here in Anchorage and then was going to fly out and go fishing out in Port Allsworth after his, uh, after his show. And so apparently singing and doing that whole concert makes you pretty thirsty because when, when he got to, the, uh, to Merrill Field there in our little office, he wanted a Coke, but all we had was like a vending machine. And this was back in the day when not all vending machines had the little bill 
thing, so it only took coins. And he didn't have any coins. So, but I had a few coins. And for me, no problem. Michael W. Smith, I'll buy you a Coke. And he tried to like pay me for it. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm happy to just give you, <laughs> give you a Coke. Why uh, did I want to give a Coke to Michael W. Smith? Um, because I had five of his CDs at home. And in fact, uh, his cassette album, Michael W. Smith 2, was the first album I ever purchased. So I was like a fan of this guy. And here it was, I can do something for Michael W. Smith. I can buy him a Coke. And I was happy to do it. That's a little tiny bit of the way we should feel about opportunities to serve God. Who is it that we have the privilege of serving and doing his will? God himself, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty is asking someone to do something for him. Listen, listen to that again. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? An open opportunity to serve God? What an amazing privilege it is to be eager to volunteer to serve our God. And of course, there's also a second reason that Isaiah was eager to serve. Gratitude. Because he had received mercy from God. Isaiah knew he was sinful and totally undeserving. He knew that he was ruined by his sin. But God had mercy on him. And as a result, Isaiah uh, was, uh, was ready to serve because of what God had done for him. How could he not want to serve the God who had done so much for him. Now we know that Isaiah had a unique calling. I mean, he was called to be God's prophet and speak the very words of God and to bring that message to his people and to write this book that we are reading now. Um, our calling is not the same as his. But God is still saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? He is still looking for people to serve him. And God has unique roles for each of us to play in his plan. Maybe you're not going to be quite as big a role as Isaiah played, but you have a task from God. And how should you respond? It is a great privilege for you to serve the awesome, holy God, just as it was for Isaiah. And God has done just as much for you as he has done for Isaiah. Your lips have been touched with the coal from the altar, and your guilt has been taken away. So seek the will of the Lord for your life. 
and say with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Now normally at the end of a message like this, I would say, anybody that wants to talk to me about this after the service, you can find me back by my table at the back. I stand back there with the connected table and everything, but can't do that to, uh, this time. So instead I am going to say, if you want to talk to me, about anything on here, feel free to shoot me a text or give me a call, 907-315-3803. Get in touch. I'd love to hear from you, talk to you about this message from Isaiah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the ultimate holy and great God your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness are beyond measure. And Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a greater vision of you so that we too can come to see what Isaiah saw. And guide us, Lord, as we seek to show our gratitude by serving you. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.